Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Beaumont. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to an instrumental version of X's and O's, An American Girl, originally recorded by Tricia Yearwood and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Alice Randall. A Harvard-educated novelist, professor, and songwriter, Alice is the only African-American woman to have written a number one country hit. She'll join us later to talk about her career as a songwriter and much more. Part one. Well, you know, Scott, I feel like I'm on some kind of vacation lately uh, because I haven't really been contributing a whole lot to these last few episodes. Right. Well, and and I don't want to create the impression that (laughs) exactly. Well, well, acknowledge your point that you've been largely useless. Uh, (laughs) I I I don't want to create the impression amongst the listeners that you've been MIA because uh, in reality, I was in Nashville recently. I interviewed Rodney Crowell, Alice Randall, and Marty Stewart in the same week. And uh, we just happen to be airing those three in a row, kind of uh, as a nod to the Ken Burns country music documentary, which we're still celebrating. I think uh, it is now also available to view online. I actually have nothing to do with it. I don't know why I'm like being a commercial for it. But well, because uh, it's kind of awesome. Yeah, it's an important documentary. But, um, you know, we kind of did a four episode arc here. We're in the middle of this four episode arc. Yeah. Uh, kind of celebrating the, the Ken Burns documentary. The first uh, episode we did was the Curly Putman interview, which w- had kind of been lost in the archives and was was found again, which is an interesting story. So I yeah. suggest people go hear that episode if they haven't heard it yet. Um, and then Rodney and Alice and Marty are all people who are on screen uh, as talking heads in the country music documentary. Yeah. Not the David Byrne kind of talking heads, right. the actual talking heads. Um, so we decided it'd be fun to kind of put all that together and have this sort of unofficial celebration of uh, the documentary that, that Ken Burns did. But the unfortunate downside is since you were not with me in Nashville. Ironically, you were in Nashville at the same time, but you weren't able to be with me for these interviews. Um, But but I I want people to know that I do, however, value your your emotional support. Thank you. And I also wanted to spell any rumors. I've I've heard some just sort of whisperings out there. Number one, these writers did not refuse to speak to me. (laughs) That's not why I wasn't there. Um, I have not been in any kind of rehab facility. Right. uh, And you are not preparing to replace me with a robot. Um, <laughs> not, all of those no, rumors are, no. uh, are untrue. Yeah, the, um, we should talk uh, after this. But uh, No, I, I want to just say that regardless of what anyone might say, you have value. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, thank you. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of like uh, now lining up uh, among the listeners to, to hear this Alice Randall interview. Uh, yeah. She's a fascinating character. Yeah, she is. Very interesting person, very thoughtful and reflective. Uh, she's an academic, but also uh, has this 
unique combination of both being an academic and very passionate about what she's talking about. So in no way is her is her uh, delivery dry or mm. or, you know, academic in the way that we might think of that term. And, right. you know, some people might think of it that way. She School's is school's boring. Yeah. <laughs> but who wants to read? <laughs> now, she uh, is very thoughtful and, and also very like jazzed up and excited about what she's talking about, which is infectious. I really enjoyed we got together uh, in Nashville at the offices of Music Row magazine, which is kind of a local um, you know, magazine that serves the, the music community there in Nashville. So right in Music Row, we sat down, um, had a hugely long conversation. This is only about half of it. We just couldn't fit all of it in here. Yeah. Um, and then went out to lunch after that and kept talking. Really wow. enjoyed spending time uh, with Alice. And also realized um, Alice was, was born and lived her early years in an area of Detroit called Black Bottom, huh. which is where Lamont Dozier is from. And uh, Lamont Dozier, of course, was our very special guest for the 100th episode of, of Songcraft. An incredible moment for us. An amazing interview. Um, what actually came after that interview is I approached Lamont about writing his autobiography. Um, and he agreed, and we did. And it's coming out November 26th. Um, it's called How Sweet It Is. Well, congrats to you and to Lamont. Yeah, yeah. Um, that sounds like the kind of thing that we should, I don't know, I don't want to step on any toes here, but it's, I don't feel like we should do some kind of contest or giveaway for that. I like it. Let's do a Lamont contest. Um, the book comes out November 26th, so that gives us a little time before the release date. It'll give us a couple episodes for people to enter. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes we give away signed stuff, but I'm going to say this, since I know I'll be around Lamont coming up here soon... Whoever wins, we will have him personally sign a book to you. I love so that. So he can, he can make it out to you, or if there's somebody in your life that's a big Motown fan, he can make it out to that person, but he will personalize. By the way, I'm totally speaking on behalf of Lamont. <laughs> I have not asked him this, but he's, he's also a, nice guy. a super nice guy, He'll and he it. will absolutely do this for, for the Songcraft listeners. So uh, we'll have a contest, and we will um, have Lamont um, sign it to to you or or to the to your loved one of choice so to enter go to our website at songcraftshow.com there's a contact button there contact us via the website and tell us what your favorite holland dozier holland song is there's tons of them to choose from stop in the name of love how sweet it is you can't hurry love sugar pie honey bunch nowhere to run i mean the list goes on and on but just tell us what your favorite Holland Dozier Holland song is, and that will enter you into the contest. We'll just need your name and your email address, and uh, then we will announce a couple episodes from now who the lucky winner is. So. And don't miss this chance. You know, I don't want you to spend the rest of your life without a sense of Dozier closure. Oh man, was that <laughs> <laughs> was that not good? No, that was uh, so bad. It was good. It came all the way back around. It like wow. it, it folded back in on itself and made me question time and space. That's what the kids call a boomerang, right? Yeah, I don't know what kids call anything anymore. Yeah. Part two. Alice Randall is a Harvard-educated African-American novelist who lives in Nashville and writes country songs. Along with Matresa Berg, Alice co-wrote Trisha Yearwood's chart-topping single X's and O's, An American Girl, making her the first and so far only African-American woman to write a number one country hit. Additionally, she co-wrote Mo Bandy's top 40 hit, Many Mansions, as well as Judy Rodman's Girls Ride Horses 2, which was the first top 10 written by either Alice or her co-writer, future Nashville Songwriters Hall of Famer Mark D. Sanders. 
After forming an early songwriting partnership with Steve Earle, Alice went on to have her songs recorded by a long list of artists, including Holly Dunn, Marie Osmond, Glenn Campbell, Joel Sonnier, Walter Hyatt, Pat Alger, Matresa Berg, Radney Foster, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Crystal Gale, and Hank Thompson. Along with Mark O'Connor and Harry Stenson, she wrote the groundbreaking Ballad of Sally Ann. Alice is a New York Times best-selling novelist who has authored The Wind Done Gone, Pushkin and the Queen of Spades, Rebel Yell, Ada's Rules, and the forthcoming Black Bottom Saints, which is partially inspired by her formative years in Detroit. In addition to her fiction writing, Alice teamed up with her daughter, Caroline Randall Williams, to write Soul Food Love, healthy recipes inspired by 100 years of cooking in a black family. She is currently a writer-in-residence at Vanderbilt University, where she teaches a number of courses, including country lyric and American culture. She was featured in Ken Burns' acclaimed country music documentary, spotlighting the often overlooked contributions of African Americans to the genre's development. Not only does she write songs, but Randall thinks deeply about and is deeply moved by the literary value of song lyrics. Alice, welcome to Songcraft. It is so great to be here with you, Scott, and on Music Row. I know, right in the uh, right in the heart of it. Um, well, I want to talk about a little bit about your growing up years. I understand that you were born in Washington D.C., but grew up, or rather, born in Detroit, but grew up in Washington D.C. And you know, people don't normally associate country music with Detroit and Washington D.C. So, talk a little bit about your growing up years and and the music that you were kind of absorbing as a kid. That is a great question. Um, I was born in Detroit in 1959, and I did grow up in Washington, moving there when I was about nine years old. But I really, I very much come from Detroit City, Detroit, Alabama, as I call it, because uh, the part uh, of black Detroit I grew up in, most everybody was straight up from Alabama. My father mm. lived in Alabama until he was about 13, 14 years old. My father was actually close friends with the Gordy family. Mm. Um, we knew Marvin Gaywell. We knew the Supremes. That that was the family circle in which I was raised. So my father was not in the music business. Um, he claimed to have dated Anna Gordy. I don't know if there's evidence of that or not. <laughs> but I knew Anna would take my phone calls uh, well into my 20s when I called. So they clearly have been close. Right. The year I was born, Lil Hardin Armstrong had a hit that was big in Detroit, just for the thrill of it. And Lil Hardin, this will make me tear up, played on Blue Yodel number nine. Standing on the corner, I didn't mean no harm. Along come a police, he took me by the arm. But as a little black girl in Detroit, I never remember not knowing that. Hmm. But so when my father was in a world of songwriters, my father was that man trying to point out the women writers to me who really did something. Yeah, yeah. And who did he put in front of me was Lil Hardin, hmm. who was a woman yeah. who helped actually create country music. And to this day, that's hard to get acknowledged. People yeah. now acknowledge that Louie's playing the horn on that Jimmy Rogers Right. But they don't realize it's Lil playing the piano, driving the whole thing. Right, right. Your your dad, I mean, why do you think that he kind of had that instinct? Why was that important for him to, to educate you about that kind of thing? Such a good question. My dad's name was George Randall. 
his parents, his father particularly, truly could not read and write. So language and oral language was really important to him. And my father was um, a thriving businessman in black Detroit. But what was dominating in terms of art culture there mm -hmm. was music. People took their children to hear music and they took their children to the bars. And the bars, there'd be an eight o'clock show, mm -hmm. 10 o'clock. There's a 2 a.m. show at a lot of show bars every single night. Because right. if you get off the midnight shift and you're ready to go out, you're ready to go out at 2 a.m. Yeah. And some places had 11 a.m. shows because if you got out at seven, mm -hmm. you're ready to go hear something at 11. That's right. your night. So people have not really recognized, but I grew up and lived in. Yeah. Probably there has never been a live music scene, yeah. the equivalent of Detroit when I was born in 59. So the text, the literary texts in their lives mm -hmm. were blues songs, new Motown songs, and country music songs. Yeah. Those yeah. were the texts they knew. My grandmother taught me, May the Soak World Be Unbroken. Right. Wow. She was up from Alabama. Yeah. And they taught me that even though hidden up in that mix, because remember there a lot of Harlan Howard was born in Detroit. Right. Detroit City, that amazing song about people coming up. Yeah. It was also nationalistic for my father to point out this is not something just white people know, own and create. Yeah. That we help. He knew Lil and he knew some of the other pioneers. He wanted, and he's from the country. And mm -hmm. you have to realize, like Ray Charles said, if you're a black country person, the only, while you're in Alabama, the radio plays the Opry and right. country. There right. was no black radio station blasting into Selma <laughs> when right. my father was a little boy. Yeah. And there's also a, a tie, you know, I think about in California during World War II, you know, they, like Bob Wills would play these swing shift dances, you know, same, same concept, people getting off work in these factories. And so the other thread is whether it's, a black club or if it's a, a white dance hall or whatever it is, it's all these blue collar workers. Absolutely. I mean, I've always, what drew me is that born in Detroit, a union town, blue collar town, was this sense that this is, I've always said, hard music for hard people. Hmm. And it has always, what I love most about country is that it is soul sustaining. Hmm. You know, um, jazz music would not have survived the Great Depression without the West Virginia coal camps. Yeah. White men and black men, different minds, going down, risking their lives, mm -hmm. but coming out with money. Jazz bands would go and play those coal camps for a month at a time and make the money, black and white bands, yeah. to be able to survive the rest of the winter in Chicago, survive. That's where, that became the cash cap, where the coal camps. And people don't realize that the miners, a large percentage of the West Virginia miners were black. Yeah. And they're another place they're listening to the same and different music. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, at the time that you arrived in Nashville, I think most people would not expect that the average black woman would want to pursue a career as a country music songwriter. But then add to that, coming from Harvard... <laughs> I don't think people think of like, oh yeah, folks want to go to Harvard and then like come down to Nashville and write country songs. So you sort of had like this whole defying of expectations on a number of levels. Talk about kind of coming out of school and, and figuring out that, you know, songwriting was something that, that was calling you. Goes back to after Detroit. My parents divorced. I landed in Washington, D.C., a very intellectual, progressive part of Washington. And that was one of my first deep introductions to another side of country music because of all strange things. My white stepfather, 
who was president of a very normal intellectual consulting firm, had a country house in Middleburg, Virginia, and yeah. all of the music available in rural Virginia on the radio was country. Yeah. So that was, and he had a cassette tape of John Prime that I did adore. So that was, so I arrived at Harvard, and at the same time that Boston had briefly a country station that I, the slogan was Boston's best country, it was Boston's only country, but I started listening to actually radio country. Right. I was in the English department writing my thesis on Jane Austen, but mm. then I was doing a lot of bad typing. And I had <laughs> one time like a hundred pages I had to type. So I'm listening to the country station on and on, first almost as a joke, hmm. and over time I fall in love with it. And I fall in a very particular love too. I did a lot of work on at Harvard on 17th century Puritan sermons. I was very interested in the founding of our nation and mm -hmm. conflicts between our national identity and national reality. And looking at how the first, the Puritans who came here for political reasons to build a city on a hill, a new Jerusalem, what their ideal was and what was their reality. When you start looking at that, you start looking at also Edward Taylor, American metaphysical poetry. And the shortcut is people teach you at Harvard that metaphysical poetry died in the 18th century with John Donne and doesn't live past Edward Taylor in America. And I was listening to country music and I heard drop keep me Jesus to the goalpost of life. <laughs> and I knew immediately that was American metaphysical poetry. That metaphysical poetry was alive and well and hidden in Nashville, like in witness protection. <laughs> right. and, but that got me interested in the deep lyrical strategies of country yeah. from Harvard. So there was a direct connection. And then add that together with, I knew all these great songwriters like Smokey Robinson, Holland Dozier, Holland, since I was a child. Yeah. Saw what Marvin Gaye was doing, who I'd known since I was a baby. And I wanted to be a novelist and it came to me I should support my serious novel writing hmm. by being a country music writer and publisher. So I moved to Nashville. <laughs> and oddly enough, it sort of worked. Yeah. So when you first got here, um, I mean, did you already have some, some contacts? What was kind of your strategy when you hit town? It was weird. I'd only, how David had very much encouraged me. He had looked at some of my lyrics and he said, what's wrong with this one particular one? And I said, I don't know, you tell me. And he said, what's wrong with it is I didn't write it. He said, you don't have any craft, but you've got original ideas mm. and you know the form. Yeah. You can learn the craft. Yeah. He said, you've got the ideas. So that encouraged me to come down here. But the first meeting I had at Acuff Rose, this guy, Ronnie Gant, who I love now, put his feet up on his desk shook his head and just said, I don't see it. I just don't see it at all. You need to go back to wherever you came from. He literally said wow. these words to me. And then he told me, but maybe you were such a low level of beginning that I wouldn't recognize this anymore. I'm going to have a few of my writers look at this. And he then wrote, followed up when I went back to Washington and said, they told me you have no talent whatsoever. Fast forward to Music Row something that used to be called the weenie roast that happened once a year and a bunch right. of songwriters get together. I remember that. And um, I was 23, cute, at the weenie roast, and some guy is talking to me and you know saying he wants to write with me and I'm not really convinced he actually wants to write with me. And he said, why do you think I don't want to write with you? I said, because uh, your publisher asked you 
And you told him I had no talent whatsoever. My name is Alice Randall. He burst out <laughs> laughing. That was Mark D. Sanders. And his first top 10 was my first top 10, wow. Girls Ride Horses 2. <laughs> the second song we ever wrote got recorded. It was the B-side of a number one single, Reckless Night. Right. And the funny thing is Ronnie Gant came to me and gave me back the publishing on that. Because he said, I didn't help you, I didn't see it, and you did it. Wow. And that's the old music row. Yeah. That a black woman who comes to town, 23 years old, he could have easily kept that publishing. It was his. He said, I didn't help you on that. I yeah. didn't see it. You take that. Take it where you need to go to get where you're going. Yeah. I went on to publish, Mark. Yeah. Um, I only signed three songwriters when I was a publisher. My company was called Midsummer Music. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, Mark was really broke through being our full-time writer. And yeah. he's gone on to, I think, have 30 number ones. Yeah. But he hadn't had one when I signed him. Wow. And uh, he actually briefly even lived in our offices at wow. the very beginning, sang at my first wedding in Washington, right. D.C. We came up together. We <laughs> yeah. did. And you know, I still love and respect Mark, and he's yeah. gone on. That's amazing. So I came here to Music Row, and I knew three people literally to speak to. Wow. Literally. Yeah. And one of them had said I had no talent whatsoever. <laughs> so I would just get the TV guide that yeah. back when they had that in the newspaper. And right. I would make a list. it come on Sunday. Yeah. Every single thing that's free and open. I go to a writer's night every single night, sometimes wow. two. Yeah. Any tapings, Nashville now, anything that was available that you could go to free and just show up at. Yeah. I did it seven days a week. Wow. I started just to be out and hear what was happening. Right. And then I would go into the Country Music Hall of Fame was now then on Music Row. And I wiggled my way into their basement and start going over the old newspapers and charts from the 50s and 60s. And huh. I would just start reading on a random day and outlining the songs that I fell in love with. I found Red Bandana that way. Hmm. Wow. And studying the songs. So you were literally just analyzing them as, as like the text of the song. Because I was trained that way. I yeah. wrote my thesis at Harvard on Jane Austen. I was trained to analyze literature. Right. I knew it was great literature. And I think one of the reasons people respected me was I didn't come here to make money or exploit. I came here thinking this is one of America's great and ununderstood art forms. Yeah. Ununderstood by many things. I felt that because working class white people were not given their due mm -hmm. and intellectuals didn't understand, they couldn't hear past the accents yeah. to the brilliance. They couldn't hear how brilliant Bobby Braddock and Bob McDill were. Yeah. Um, and I could hear that, and they, and then some other people couldn't hear how black this music was, mm -hmm. dressed differently, but it had a lot of black and working class aesthetics, and also how feminist it was. That I heard songs like "The Pill," mm -hmm. um, "Don't Come Home from Drinking with Love and on Your Mind." These yeah. are feminist anthems that eclipse anything you hear almost to today. Yeah, on rock, you have to go to hip hop to hear things as strong stances that women are taking. Right. Um, so I wanted to be, to recognize all that. So one of the things I also would do is I took the Billboard Hot 100 and I would go to sleep. I mean, it was before downloading all this, just with the radio on and listen to it all night. And huh. I would wake up in the middle of the night if I heard a song I love, wake up and try to write down some of the lyrics. Hmm. Or play my albums all through the night. I mean, I literally, to... I wanted to know every single song in the Hot 100. Yeah. And then I wanted to hear the songs that are out in the clubs that were great, that would never get cut. 
or would move towards it. So over yeah. time, I got to see what could move from this little guitar, guitar vocal or piece of a song to yeah. a song on the radio. What couldn't, what should have but couldn't, yeah. and then what had in the past. I really trained myself with songs that weren't really related to anyone I was dealing with, things from the 50s, mm -hmm. and seeing songs that just popped in my heart, that spoke mm -hmm. to me. Because if I'm a black woman from Detroit via Washington, D.C., with a lot of Harvard veneer, a song that speaks to me and spoke to working class people in Kentucky is a great song. Yeah. And that's the only kind of song I've ever been concerned with. Taps into the universal human experience. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I've always been a big Steve Earle fan, and, and his publisher put out this Uncut Gems CD, I think during, probably during the time when Steve was kind of on his, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you call it, he was off doing his uh, self-destructive thing for a few years. I went and... exploring all of what it means to be Steve Earle in the world. <laughs> right. So his publisher had put out this thing called Uncut Gems, which was some, like, songs from his catalog and they were obviously trying to kind of keep his catalog alive and and uh but there's like three songs on there that that you and and steve wrote together and this all kind of predates his big guitar town breakthrough when i came here in 1983 i arrived on a friday night we didn't find the bluebird that night because i wasn't expecting it to be in a strip mall but right. I, I heard there was a three-piece rockabilly band playing that weekend at the Bluebird, and the Saturday night we found it, and Steve Earle, it was Steve Earle in one of his permeations. Yeah. So it was my literal second night in Nashville. I heard Steve, heard the lyric, heard the strength, heard something that I, and never had heard of him before, yeah. and knew this was something that I resonated with, and he was someone I could write with, I thought. So uh, fast forward a little bit, I told my friend Bob Doyle, who at that time was uh, the most junior person at ASCAP, I may have, I did not lie because I never lie, but I may have led him to believe that Steve Earle had given me his phone number. He <laughs> certainly gave me Steve Earle's phone number. And I called up Steve Earle. He called me every kind of bitch I have ever <laughs> heard anyone. No one had ever cursed me just for calling him. How did you get my number? And he's right. like screaming. And, and this is before he's even well known. He's totally not well-known. He's unknown. He was not well-known. He was like, yeah, unknown. unknown. It was just, he said he had a terrible day. His car broke down. Strange women are calling him on the phone. And I said, do you need a ride? And he said, yes. I said, do you want me to come pick you up? He was on Belmont Boulevard. So I drove over, picked him up. We had a perfectly nice talk. He was nice now that I was going to drive him. And he was going to a studio on Music Row. But when we got there... I pulled out a cassette of a song that I had written. Right. And I said, I hope you listen to this. Whatever kind of bitch he had not called me in that first <laughs> encounter on the phone. Right. He truly, to the point, he's, he's I'm rolling out the window, locking the door. I thought this feeling like murdered me. And I just burst out laughing, drove away, thinking in my little duster, my Plymouth, no, it wasn't a duster, a little Ford Escort. And thinking, <laughs> Please thank God. I hope I, his man doesn't kill me. And I have gotten away from this insane person. Right. Because he literally, I, mean, I had actually never heard a barrage of just right. pent up <laughs> widespread anger of some sort. Right. <laughs> so, but the next 
maybe, I don't know whether it was a week, 10 days later. They're on the cassette was my phone number. He calls me up and he said, you're going to be a great songwriter one day and I'm going to help you. He hmm. said, there's something in here. And we started writing and for a long time, we wrote together once a week, once a month, really regularly. For the longest time, I was one of the only people that Steve co-wrote with. Yeah. And so I think we, he certainly had an impact on my life yeah. and my writing life. And I think the place I had the distinct impact on his writing life was as a fiction writer. That hmm. I actually kidnapped his early short stories and <laughs> sent them to my editor. Right. And we ended up having the same editor. Yeah. I think it did alter the amount of time we sat in a room together and mm -hmm. the kind of understanding of the feminine that I live and possess. I think in my approach to narrative, may or may not, I'll leave that to Steve and other people to say whether it had an impact on him. But uh, as I teach my kids, acculturation is usually a two-way street. Right. I influence you, you influence me. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go back um, to, you know, once you start getting some cuts, you know, once people start start recording your songs, and you mentioned, of course, um, that you and Mark Sanders had your first top 10 single together, Judy Rodman, Girls Ride Horses 2. Reductive version of this is I went to Farm Aid with Steve. Okay. Back in the sort of wild days. Still. Right. <laughs> this would have been, I can tell you, it was about 1986. Right. I think that his record label thought I would be a good influence because I'm very straight. Right. And uh, <laughs> it was amazing. George Jones played Bonnie Raitt. All I can say is various wildness of exposure in general, not necessarily with Steve, but the world of Farm Aid back in <laughs> right. Those days right. led me to the line as I was sitting in the air airport when I was thinking like everyone is trying to, not everyone, but there was a spirit of trying to intimidate that goody two-shoes girl with the gritty world, goody two-shoes girl. With, and I thought, <laughs> girls ride horses too. Like I come from Detroit. I'm as gritty as any of you. Right, right. You're not going to shock me. And that's where exactly girls ride horses too yeah. comes from. Oh, wow. Like, because it's about this drug dealer that's telling this woman and I, this was not, that was all translated. This was nothing to do with literal drug dealing or anything of this sort. But the song was about a woman who's dating a drug dealer who's saying, if you want to love me, it's going to be rough. You know, life in, you know, this is a hard thing. And yeah. she actually robs him. And she says to him, <laughs> if you want to love me, you better get tough. Right. <laughs> life on the border is a little bit rough. Right. So it was a very much a conscious response to saying, don't say the girls can't play hard. I can play. I may play different. <laughs> right. I may play smart. I'm not playing. But I can play just as hard as anybody. Yeah. And so that, so girl, and I came back to, with that title, Girls Ride Horses too. Huh. These are not gendered experiences and there's more than one flavor of toughness. Right. And the person that was perfect to write that with was Mark Sanders because Mark always knew how to translate me. <laughs> and Mark is deep. But he also knew how to um, translate himself so it could be understood by a very more general, um, a larger population. Right. But I think I love Girls Ride Horses for the reason, for the, met, the metaphorical aspect of it. Right. That women are as tough as men. 
once you kind of got that success, is there a degree to which you had to answer the novelty of a black Harvard educated woman who comes to Nashville to be a songwriter? Does it kind of become like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm not necessarily what you expect, but do I have to constantly focus on that part of it? Can I just be a country songwriter? It's very complicated to be black in America and be a woman in America. It's never just being a woman in America. It's never just being in America. So I would never ask Music Row to be more than the world. And I think that mm. one of the things that is unfair to country music is people will point out racism in country music. And I say, country music is not any worse than America, and in many ways it's better. Hmm. So my personal experience, actually, you know, I could say, tell you shocking, weird stories. There are the five or six shocking, weird mm -hmm. stories. I'm not sure that, and I'll get back to that, but on a more particular note, the negativity was much more in the room on being a woman. Because mm -hmm. you have to realize that when I was starting to write, which was 83, aside from women who were the daughters of or wives of country stars, and actually a successful group of gay women writers, there were very, very, very few women writers, period, who were not artists right. writing on Music Row. Mm -hmm. Because of my sort of almost encyclopedic knowledge of country music at that time and my ability to quote lyrics and their own lyrics back to other people, mm -hmm. and the fact that I actually really knew the form and could go back 20 years of lyrics, mm -hmm. essentially, people took me very seriously. That was the thing that was noted first. Yeah. They, and people were intrigued because they sort of thought I would write the history of this or they wanted me to know or they wanted to know how I evaluated some of their lyrics. Mm. But there was a writer that I loved. I thought the world of their writing and I still do. And we were in a club together, a bunch of us. And they literally, I overheard them say, I have lived too long if I have to compete with nigger girls from Harvard for cuts. Mm. I, I, it soon became, did they ever, I don't think they ever got past looking at the Harvard woman thing. Yeah. Uh, I think that I got so tough. My, uh, you know, those early days of sexism and, and I'm not minimizing any of this. Uh, I won't say the name. But I remember my early days, I got quickly to that I could not let anyone, in those days I didn't have an office, I was creating my own office that didn't have an office. Right. And so normally you could write in other people's houses. Yeah. After two incidences, both with people who are in the Hall of Fame, that is all I will just say, <laughs> right. in the Songwriter Hall of Fame. Yeah. Not minor people. <laughs> <laughs> um, where I was totally serious and thought they're getting this as the Harvard woman who knows country music. The one person called, quoted me a line from their song. So I thought that was just playful about the line for their song, but it was definitely one of those come on kind of lines. I let them come on over to start <laughs> writing. And this person is chasing me literally around my own apartment. Wow. And I finally got them out the door without anything happening, but they right. had not intended to write anything with me. Right. Um, the other one was someone who got me in their dilapidated mansion. This is before cell phones <laughs> that had 
paid uh, one of the most amazing songs of all time had paid for. This is yeah. my Sunset Boulevard moment. Right. Fortunately, in this dilapidated mansion were phones in every room, including the bathroom. So I went <laughs> to the bathroom, called my friend Ray Kennedy, <laughs> and I named the person. I said, I am in this person's house. He is being very aggressive with me and wants to encounter me in a you know, physical way, I think. Yeah. And he said, why are you there? You know, he held a gun to one songwriter and threw somebody else out of a second story window. Oh, <laughs> and I said, and he said, in this imperfect country way, he said, I'll get, the, I'll get my shotgun and get my truck and come get you. <laughs> by, the time, um, by the time he was almost there, I did get out of there. There is a song in a catalog somewhere. I will not say where. That guy <laughs> finished the song right. and put my name on it. And it, the title was something like, I'm still afraid of you. Right. That's when I knew <laughs> that this is, whoa, I'm not thinking about him at all. But he got sober, got straight, apologized to me on the stage of backstage of one of the fanfares right. out, out the old. So it was that the sexism and the sexual harassment that occasionally occurred in yeah. that time period was extraordinary. But, but that was right. much more the problem than race. People got, wow. pa I think because they didn't think a lot of other black writers were coming. Yeah. They were afraid that a lot of other women writers might come. Huh. So they were organized to resist that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no wow. one else thought I'd be, there were other people as stupid as I was to yeah. want to come. Yeah. <laughs> to me, that's just because from my perspective, obviously as a man, you know, I, I, I have the, you know, the privilege of not really thinking about safety questions like if i'm going over to this person's house it's not going to occur to me am i going to be safe you it's, know no and it was that when people were saying well why don't you let me help you and then and wanting something this and i yeah. said i think that could be a great way i said it ironically i yeah. did not mean it i think that would be a great way to celebrate my number one record why don't you help me first <laughs> and then that would be a really great way to but that was i had come up with a com, right. a comeback for right. it but more there was the bob mcdill's but that people who did help i will say country music if you love it and understand it it the writing community will make a space for you yeah. The radio community is something very different right. and different now still. But the writing community made a space. Mm -hmm. The writing community, white writers, older writers were always telling me the names of black people who had contributed on a session or written or had been the backup singer even better than the lead singer. Yeah. They were always fortifying me with the stories of black presence in country. Yeah. So you kind of had a a historical mindset. I mean, you talked about studying lyrics and going back to songs of the 50s to kind of understand and analyze the lyrical perspective. And obviously talking about your dad kind of pointing out these contributions. But clearly, even in that era, you had this sort of historical mindset. It's like you were constructing your understanding of black contributions to country music even as you are a contemporary country music songwriter. Right. I just perceived myself and wrote articles just for myself. There was no place ah. to even publish them then. Wow. I mean, I had, uh, starting in 83, I actually thought I would probably do get a doctorate, go, but no one wanted you to do a doctorate <laughs> in country lyric and American culture. Right. One of the things, once I did get my name known on Music Row, so this is, say, 
85, but even trying. I never wrote love songs. I felt there were too many of them and there were so many people who did that well. And I would yeah. teasingly say that nothing I knew about love was uh, simple enough for a song, <laughs> uh, which may say more about what I don't know about love. But I knew that country and the ballad form is often used for information, hmm. the traditions of it. So those songs, and those are the songs I set out to work on and find people. And that's what I became noted for. Yeah. Um, I have one of my favorite songs I'm most proud of is a song I co-wrote with Mark O'Connor and Harry Stinson. That was on that uh, new Nashville Cats record, right? Yes. Yeah. And one subject in which all my studies said that is a Southern black experience and a Southern white experience that is, as far as I know, has never been addressed in a country song explicitly is lynching. Now, mm -hmm. of course, we have popular and jazz songs, most notably Strange Fruit. Right. But I wanted to write, address that subject. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to address that subject so that a lot of people would listen to it and mm -hmm. hear it. So I thought about complex songs. So my model for that song was Heartbroke, mm -hmm. a Guy Clark song. Right. About a complicated psychological circumstance in a relationship, but it has a simple little title, Heartbroke. Yeah. It's not about heartbroke. It's yeah. about complex betrayals. So what do I learn from that? You gotta say the words real fast. So uh -huh. that people don't really know what heartbroke is about. Yeah. I looked at Long Black Veil mm -hmm. and the traditions of haunting. Our ballad of Sally Ann is nothing like and owes everything to hmm. heartbroke. And Long Black Veil. Long Black Veil is one of my absolute favorite songs of all time. Yeah. And my deeper understanding of propaganda in literature. So this is a song about a man who is literally lynched between his wedding and reception. Hmm. You put it with more of a focus on the wife, the bewildered woman, seeing him hang for the trees. Yeah. And then she's going as a little fiddler, honoring the old black fiddle players to weddings yeah. and saying, who's going to dance with Sally Ann? Who's going to take responsibility? And then she gets to come back and they get a triumph because I don't want to be about black tragedy. They get to be united in death right. and haunt the people who lynched them. Right. Johnny got married in his one good suit, but the ride from church for strange fruit down by the road. You can hear her cries as he hung from a tree. She watched him die. Who's going to dance with Sally Ann? that's such a great one and you know a really interesting way to approach a difficult subject um you know i've got to ask you uh about x's and o's which of course um was a huge hit for trisha yearwood probably your best known song um what was the inspiration for that one i was in the shower thinking i had just failed the school wanted me to bring something out forgotten my publisher thought i hadn't written the right song for a tv show and I was in the shower and said, you've got a picture of your mama in heels and pearls and you're trying to make it in your daddy's world. It's not going to work. Hmm. And then I thought of that again and I thought, that's my song. Hmm. I have a picture of my mama in heels and pearls in my head and I am trying to be hard as my daddy in my daddy's world. I literally got out of that shower, ran to Matrice's, banged on her front door. She opened the door. I told her those lines. 
she started grooving with it the second verse because she's already having these big hits but you never know if you're being paid or not when you write it's easy if you get paid every line in that song phone rings baby cries tv diet guru lies it was the beginning of me starting to gain weight dealing with all these pressures it, that song was real life and yeah. that's why real women resonated to it and i have no idea but again to get it in there we gave it a great beat and a right. sing-along spirit phone rings baby cries tv diet guru lies good morning honey go to work make up try to keep the balance up between love and money she used to tie her hair up in ribbons and bows sign her letters with x's and o's got a picture of her mama in heels and pearls she's trying to make it in her daddy's world she's an american girl i will tease i'm going to call out robert orman right here on the radio i love robert <laughs> bob orman did a great book on women in country music. Yeah. But he totally misunderstood and underread the text of that song from mm. the first review. And I've never said anything about it till this moment. He dismissed it in Music Row Magazine. We're sitting in their rooms right now, this building, as some kind of ditty, not hearing it's really about the struggle between working mm -hmm. and loving. That making a living and tending children is very difficult and it feels like being on a cross. Yeah. And that line, it didn't come, it wasn't something Matresa and I calculated. It's something we have both lived. And putting in, she's got her God, she's got good wine, Aretha Franklin and Patsy Cline, she's an American girl, is not name checking. Mm -hmm. It's claiming. Mm. And I wish I had known someone that was Asian American, I could have put in there. It's claiming the American girl is not some Barbie doll identity. Mm. It's far more complex yeah well even tying it back to D to detroit and motown songwriting the holland dozier holland songs um they all sound like you want to roll down the window and and you know they they feel good they they feel good but you start thinking about the songs baby baby where did our love go stop in the name of love, like all of this before you break my heart. You know, the, when you slow those songs down to like a, a ballad form and you really think about what they're saying, there, there's a lot of pain and heartache in those songs. And it, I, I sort of connect that with what you're talking about is some of these songs, people just, they hear them and they feel good and they, and it's like, oh yeah, but there's these depths, the emotional depths that, that people don't recognize. And aesthetic depths. I love the body of literature that is Holland, Dozier, and Holland. And many of the Motown songs are extraordinary. And one of the ways to see their extraordinariness that is often dismissed, is often dismissed the lyric. One of the things that racism has said is black people don't get ordinary, tender feelings. Hmm. That they don't get to have narratives, if you look, about their simple love between a boy and a girl, a man and a woman, a family. Mm -hmm. Every one of those Motown songs is claiming black people's central events of their life can be tender love relationships between each other and pain on the betrayal in love and family. The reason that people listen to those songs to this day mm -hmm. is because on an unconscious level, these songs are profoundly healing. 
all of those Motown songs are radical in their simple assertion of the existence of gentle black love. Those are song concepts. Those are uh, intellectual concepts that go back to the slavery period. Nothing can divide me from you, the love, whether it's a sea, whether I never see you again. But it's interesting, this crosses with the Irish sentiment during the potato famine, when people left Ireland never expecting to see their child, their mother again. Yeah. That's where these become similar deep emotions. That is why my grandmother knew Danny Boy. Hmm. It's not one set of people who have been torn away from mm -hmm. their homeland and yeah. are insisting, I will love you against all odds. Right. Motown does sound softer. Yeah. And what's interesting for a person like me, that's why I found more refuge in country songs. Country speaks to this tough stuff. Yeah. Art is what people have in their worst moments. Yeah. And one of the things you can really take with you, even into the surgery room, even into a foxhole, literally, mm -hmm. is music. It yeah. sounds that you remember. So to me, it's always been so holy because babies have it. I would say songwriting is the most only elemental art because in all cultures, parents sing to infants. Mm -hmm. Older people sing to infants in every culture. There are cultures that don't have ballet, cultures that don't have sculpture. As far as we know, there are no cultures that don't have singing. But singing also is what you have on death row, in a prison, as it going into a surgery, going into a trial. There's nothing, go, being starved, being a political prisoner, there's nothing you can face that if you ever had songs in your head. And on the countryside, that song that used to scare me, tough. I'm sure glad I had that song in my mind when I have someone telling me I have breast cancer. Yeah. yeah. I was prepared for that hard day. Yeah. I knew I was tough. I like the guy in that was saying, I thought I was tough. Yeah. I knew what to do. I had to be that woman. I don't think I've ever met an academic who is as emotionally and passionately connected to lyrics, which you also essentially study. It's clear how, how much passion, how connected you are to the craft of, of lyric writing, but also appreciating the, the writing of others and the way that it connects. It's really remarkable. The thing I feel lucky about in my career, or the, one of the things I think is I'm proudest of, is I still utterly love other people's amazing songs. Hmm. 36 years in the business has not jaded me from that. When I hear a great song, and by that I don't mean craft great, a song that I can actually internalize into my life or tell someone to li listen to when they're having a bad day. I love prescribing songs to people. Yeah. When I hear one of those songs, I am so thrilled. I still take joy from that. And to me, I always remember this about art. The importance of art is not studying it. The importance of art is being influenced by art to be more empathetic, to be more human, to be more often your best self, and to understand more people when they are being their worst self, hmm. and to connect with people and how you can do that easily 
is by sharing songs. I always say, Harlan said country was three chords in the truth. I've been saying it's three chords and four specific truths that life is hard, God is real, the road, family, and liquor can be compensations, and the past was better than the present. If I differ with the country spirit, it is that I believe that the cast needs to be reckoned with to make a better future. I am still future oriented. That is how I am black. By the time people hear this, uh, Ken Burns' country music documentary will be out. It, it starts tomorrow night on PBS. Um, you are you appear in the documentary. Um, I think one of the things that Ken tries to do with all of his work is to kind of look at the role of race in America. Country music is a particular touchstone for that. And I think that he is uh, trying to remedy some of the ways that black contributions to country music story have, have been overlooked. He's, he's put a, a spotlight on that. All of that is happening in, you know, the wake of the Lil Nas X Old Town Road thing. And, you know, what is country music? And, and all of this discussion has been has been happening very recently. You yourself have have been, you know, writing about this uh, recently. But it's it's the kind of thing that seems to be entering public conversation now but it's the sort of stuff that you've been thinking about and reflecting on for decades. 30 years, 30 so some years. I'm, I'm curious sort of how you are experiencing this moment when people in the larger culture are suddenly starting to think about and talk about something that uh, has been on your mind for a long time. It has been, it's an excitement. Um, this idea of black presence, not just black influence on country music, mm -hmm. has been a theme I have been exploring and living for 30 some years. So it is wonderful to feel that a nation that Ken Burns has turned his genius and extraordinary resources, along with an entire team, to shining a light and on the reality that there has been black presence as well as on country music. So I am thrilled and humbled that in some ways the conversation is catching up to what I have experienced. I think it's a very interesting time in the country because of the Trump White House, frankly. Mm -hmm. America perhaps has never been so divided. Ironically, country music and the deep contemplation of country is a place that allows us to see our shared roots and affirm the importance of black and other cultures to the American experience. And by looking at country carefully, understanding that the working class American identity is more complex than Trump would allow. Hmm. When people want to talk about Little Nas X, and this is not the place to go completely into this, but one, what alarms me 
is that people are f upset that he has a Wrangler jeans ad, not realizing that it's estimated 30% of all cowboys were black. Hmm. How did we get to, let alone what people don't know about country music, right. that they don't know that 30% that cowboys were of color. Right. That even currently, if they would watch actually some of the rodeoing and the PBR, is that the Brazilians, dark men of color, dominate on the current rodeo state circuit. Yeah. It's only suburban. And if I, uh, is the suburban country audience that has my ire, right. who want to look mm -hmm. at, who don't uh, pay attention to their underclass blue collar and feminist leanings of country, let alone the black part. Yeah. But these people who've never known ha have ha had to say survive. Yeah. They are the hangers on of the audience that to me have transformed. When country doesn't stay close to its blue collar roots, hmm. when it does not privilege doing the tough right thing, it's not country. Yeah. And that is the audience that, that is the aesthetic that has come into country post-1985, mm -hmm. when people just want it to be soft background of soft lives, yeah. that ain't country. Yeah. That doesn't have anything to do mm -hmm. with Jimmy Rogers or the Cotter family or Hank Williams. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with Lil Hardin. It has nothing to do with Ray Charles. It has nothing to do with D. Fort Bailey. Yeah. There is a strain of country now that has no grit to it. Mm -hmm. It is not, and it is, you know, musical wallpaper. But there is most of rock and roll today is like that. Most of a lot of music right. is that. Country still has more grit and strength and reality. But I am thrilled that at this moment in our country, when we seem so divided, that a deep contemplation of country music will say, actually, People who get up and work hard every day and do the hard, right, honorable thing, including soldiers and teachers and firefighters and policemen, everyday people are what made America great. And frankly, my political point would be, there ain't not one, there is not one country song about a billionaire oligarch and those are the people who are really attacking our country right now. And yeah. those are the people that are not being contemplated in country. And we need to get back to our real identity. Yeah, yeah. And I love the theme in our lived experience of it. May the circle be unbroken. May we continue. And that doesn't mean the circle doesn't change. Yeah. The circle we preserve and we evolve. We, I think, are hopefully moving from looking at the past so not to repeat it. Mm, yeah. You want to remember the past and get to a future. Mm. Alice, thank you so much. For the, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I love the, the depth uh, of thought that you bring to the, to the idea of songwriting. It's just amazing. Well, Scott, I want to say thank you. And also I want to say a particular thank you, Scott, for honoring the past and moving us to the future. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Songcraft Show. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.